Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast this is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle the people who make it and occasionally ourselves i'm camille foster and i am completely obsessed with ufos we need to look into these allegations not allegations credible journalistic reporting about what is happening it's becoming more frequent and i'm doing everything i can to convince these two men that this is something that they should actually be taking seriously Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, who, who does seem to be open to the truth, and Michael Moynihan of Vice News, who is far less yes. interested in talking about these serious stories. Can we get like, Eli, Eli Lake uh, to send in an expeditionary force of Marines to uh, <laughs> snatch and grab Camille before he goes completely yeah. Alex Jones on us? I don't understand why believing the reporting that I'm seeing in the New York Times and the Washington Post and various other places, respectable publications, why that makes me sound well, crazy. Camille, if we didn't have a guest that you're about to introduce, I would take about 10 minutes to tell you why it sounds crazy. <laughs> but uh, but go ahead. We'll do that. It's another episode. Uh, well, well then, then perhaps we should bring in this guest, a man who I am confident will agree with me forcefully, the <laughs> self-proclaimed greatest journalist on planet Earth, perhaps in the galaxy, because we know we're not alone in the yeah. universe. He is a, a man who has a gentle heart mm. and a sharp tongue mm. and a vicious right cross. Yes. The legendary Glenn Greenwald, ladies and gentlemen. So excited to be here, you guys. Thank you so much for... Inviting me and congratulations on the success of this podcast, which I mean, it's hard to do. You guys are like in an industry that is more glutted than, I don't know, like the oil (laughs) market or whatever. Um, There are more people who have podcasts than are in the phone book now, but you guys are carving out a great niche. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, we did. We've managed, but there are a lot of podcasts and um, I think that are there fewer podcasts now, Camille? I mean, I think it's it's kind of, have we flattened the curve on that? (laughs) No, it is. It is. It's endemic. It's not going anywhere. Nope. All right. I was walking by my um, Amazon spy box in my house yesterday. And, you know, for those of you who have it, uh, they sometimes will have like a a news headline or something like that. And uh, all it said uh, on it was listen to podcasts. It's giving you advice. Yeah, no, it's like it's like a religion. Now, you know, we just debuted a, a weekly YouTube program for me about five weeks ago on the Intercept YouTube channel. And by far the the most common feedback is when are you going to turn this into a podcast? And I don't, I keep asking, maybe it's because I'm old, but I keep saying like, look, if you like to listen to things through audio only because like video graphics and video evidence is somehow, I don't know, disturbing or bothersome to your sensibilities, your just browser. listen to the YouTube show and pretend that it's a podcast, but no, it has to be like an actual podcast. I'm very, very kind and considerate with my listeners, but everyone wants a podcast, even things that aren't podcasts. Are those critiques on YouTube? Do you read the comments? You don't. You can't. I, Please like, tell me you don't do that, Glenn. I do. <laughs> you, you guys have to remember, I started my journalism career as this blogger who just created a blog free on Blogspot back in the day. And the comment section was really valuable. And it's actually something I still kind of like about journalism, the dialogue with readers instead of like that monologue 
model of like the journalist on the mountaintop proclaiming truths. Mm. So yeah, YouTube comments tend to be uniquely trashy, <laughs> but occasionally I do venture in there. Well, I want to, I want to clarify that I think it was the New Yorker that, that, that taught me this in a, in a very kind of uh, a piece about Glenn, maybe two years ago, a profile that was kind of mixed in some ways that I liked it and didn't like it in some points, but I didn't know that you started uh, by signing up, I believe, to CompuServe so you could troll conservatives on the original townhall.com forum, which was something that was created by the Heritage Foundation. Is that true? Did I read that right? Do I, am I remembering that yeah, right? Yeah, what happened was I had <laughs> this woman in law school as my roommate and best friend, and she started dating this guy who lived in Massachusetts, and his mother was like a hardcore Rush Limbaugh fanatic. And at the time, that was Rush Limbaugh's favorite forum that he would promote was this Heritage Foundation National Review Forum inside of CompuServe. So you'd get like the little CompuServe disk, load it, and then that was how you access the internet. So she came back and she was like, oh, we have to like go in there and fuck with them. And so we did. And for like a month, we just like, you know, we're saying the most upsetting things we could think of. I was 25 back in my immature days when I like to be provocative. I'm like now when I'm only about harmony. <laughs> and... We stayed in there and the weirdest thing was after like a month or two, we actually became friends with them. And then about eight months after we began doing that with really malicious intent, every year they had this kind of convention in like places that I never would ordinarily visit. I think this one was in internal in Indiana somewhere. And I actually went and my friends in Manhattan who I, where I was living at the time were like, oh my God, you're going to get killed. They're luring you in. You know, that was the idea in the 90s of who social conservatives were. But I went and spent the weekend with them and it was incredibly fun and like just, they were highly hospitable. And um, yeah, it was actually kind of opinion shaping for me just about the lessons of not thinking about other people as caricatures. So Glenn Greenwell was created by a CompuServe disc that he got in the mail. <laughs> And forged his relationship with Tucker Carlson in the mid nineties is what I'm hearing. early, early. <laughs> yes. That was the road to led to Tucker's show. So I, I don't want to let you off the hook. I, I think you're obliged to comment on the UFO stories that we've been getting this week. <laughs> what are you doing? This is important. Michael went ahead. The man has 25 yeah. dogs. He doesn't have time for this. Oh, uh, yeah. after I just like keep praise on your podcast, <laughs> we're not going to start with the UFO discussion. I, I, don't, I don't want no. the people to be disappointed. They oh, are man. desperate for your take on this. Yeah. I, d I have to say, I did think it was interesting and a little bit disturbing that it was the military itself that deliberately released those photos, not necessarily giving credence to all of the maximalist UFO theories, but certainly deliberately adding fuel to the fire by saying, hey, take a look at some classified photos we have of unidentified flying objects. But, you know, until... I think it's normal that in the sky with all the military research that's being done, there's going to be some objects flying around that are unidentifiable. That to me does not constitute convincing proof that they're sent from wherever Camille is imagining they came from. <laughs> but, you know, it's worth keeping an open mind, I guess, about it is what I would say. I hear him saying there's a chance. Very well I'm, I'm totally fine with that. All right. Well, I'm delighted that you uh, have joined us today. This is going to be a, a, a very interesting, illuminating conversation, not that it already hasn't been. Um, and beyond UFOs, there are other things happening, terrestrial matters that we ought to turn our attention to. <laughs> um, so perhaps we could begin, Glenn, by you just telling us how things are going uh, in your neck of the woods. How are you and your family and your many dogs uh, faring? Not that your dogs aren't part of your family. I'm sorry if I suggested that or intimated <laughs> it. Um, how are you all holding up? 
in the midst of the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think like if you read about the extreme suffering people are experiencing, losing their jobs, being in hospitals, if you're healthy and isolated with your family, it's very hard to complain in a way that's credible, right? You have to be kind of grateful as long as you have your health and as long as you have your family, which is the case for me. I'm, I'm isolated with my husband, um, who is a congressman. So we typically he's in Brasilia for three or four days out of the week. Um, and now he's home all the time because unlike the U.S. Congress, the Brazilian Congress has figured out how to allow members to participate remotely. Hmm. With my two sons, a 15-year-old nephew, and as you alluded to, several dozen dogs, which are by far the best part of quarantine. Um, so yeah, I'm actually, I actually find it interesting that, you know, life has become so frenetic for so many people, right? We routinely just put ourselves on these metal tubes and hurdle ourselves through time zones to the other parts of the world. And everyone at the beginning of every day runs in separate directions. And it's kind of forced us to simplify our lives, to focus on family and kids and home and, you know, just to kind of minimize what what our brains are constantly focused on in a way that could be potentially healthy while acknowledging that there's extreme suffering, you know, for, for huge numbers of people as well. Something that I can't kind of wrap my head around. I was going through the numbers in these deaths per million numbers, which, you know, there's pretty good data on. And I added to this to this graph that I was plotting and I added Brazil to it before we did this. And Brazil is fairly low down on this on this number of deaths per million. But because of the government in Brazil and how it's, you know, run by a network of complete ratbags, I don't suspect that one can trust these numbers. So how is it in Brazil in a in a broader sense? What it, like are these numbers that we're getting of the numbers of deaths and infection rates in Brazil? I mean, coming from a government that that uh, really enjoys lying and manipulating to, manipulating the media. I mean, what is the actual situation on the ground there? Well, I think that this is going to be true for most developing countries. And by developing countries, I don't necessarily mean poor countries because Brazil is not really a poor country. It has the seventh largest economy in the world, but because of grotesque wealth and income inequality, most of the country is poor, even though the country itself isn't. But the public health system in Brazil was already almost entirely dysfunctional prior to the pandemic. It was routine for people who use public health facilities like public hospitals to have heart attacks or strokes and literally wait six or seven hours to be cared for in the ER waiting room and often were dying. There's just story after story like that. On top of that, the dearth of tests make the official numbers in Brazil and in many other countries radically understated because the only times they count anybody as a confirmed COVID-19 death or a confirmed coronavirus case, the test comes back positive. And the tests are currently taking between 17 and 20 days for them to come back. Um, with the result, oftentimes people die and then they just don't administer tests. So they've been using metrics like how filled are the cemeteries, how many people are being admitted with what they're calling severe respiratory distress. Other metrics that studies have suggested means that the official counts are something like seven to eight times larger than the official numbers reflect. And then, of course, we have a president who has by far been the worst in terms of denying the science, uh, minimizing the pandemic, encouraging people, not just with words, but his own behavior to violate isolation and quarantine. He frequently catapults himself into crowds, even though it's widely suspected that he has coronavirus. So he's almost certainly infected hundreds, if not more uh, people. 
But there have been governors, including far-right governors who had been allies of Bolsonaro, who are just trying to, to ignore and isolate him and imposing quarantine and and uh, isolation, sometimes by police force, that have at least slowed it down a little bit. But we're clearly on a worse epidemiological curve than Italy and Spain, and, and maybe set to be the worst of any country by far because of the density of the way in which people live here combined with their poverty, which means they can't stay at home combined with what the government has been telling them to do. And Bolsonaro famously said, so what the other day, didn't he? When asked about the number of people who died. Yeah. They said like, Hey, you know, by the way, we're now at the point. Cause originally Bolsonaro said, if you're under 60, this is nothing. It's a little cold. Go out onto the street and just go back to work and live your normal life, which never made much sense on all the levels that are obvious, but also in the sense that so many people in Brazil live with their parents or grandparents. So even if that were true, which it isn't, you would then pick up the virus and come back and bring it to the people who he does acknowledge are at risk. But, you know, there are all kinds of messages that he's been sending that have been designed to encourage people to ignore the virus. They've deliberately withheld the monthly payments that were intended to allow people to stay at home without starving to death. And then Bolsonaro fired his health minister, who, even though he's a far-right ideologue, was also a doctor who was following the science and contradicting Bolsonaro in a daily briefing. His numbers kind of skyrocketed. He became like the Dr. Fauci of Brazil. And unlike Trump, who wants to fire Fauci but can't, Bolsonaro could and did. And so it just kind of has been this, you know, very indecipherable message that comes from the government about whether people really ought to be staying at home. And that's caused all the problems I just identified to become even worse. When we cover uh, the the international response story, by we mean media uh, here more than us personally in the United States, it's usually through the lens of uh, either, you know, being really interested in in Sweden's model, because for obvious reasons, it's an, an outlier. So there's interest or, you know, the the specific interest in Italy uh, and certain hotspots or through the model of American domestic politics. I know that will shock you. Uh, and so when I read about Bolsonaro and coronavirus, it is always with the uh, uh, the, the the adjective Trump ally or the, uh, you know, the, the the precursor of Trump ally. Bolsonaro does X, Y and Z. Just curious, like in Brazil. Um, how much does Trump come up in the coverage of Bolsonaro? Is that also used in the, in the same way or, or people just like, he's his own damn thing that we have to contend with in this uh, weird country. Yeah. You know, it is interesting because it's bothered me for a long time. This whole idea that Bolsonaro should be considered Trump of the tropics. It was obviously a way for Western media outlets to explain to their readers and listeners who Bolsonaro was because people can't understand other countries without direct and immediate reference to their own. When the reality is they're wildly different um, for so many reasons. I mean, to begin with, Brazil is a radically different country than the U.S. in terms of its ability to resist authoritarianism in large part because Brazil was a, med- a military dictatorship until 1985. So its democracy is only 35 old, whereas the U.S. has been inculcated for centuries to venerate democratic values and institutions. Half the country in Brazil actually lived through military dictatorship, and Jair Bolsonaro was in the military as a captain during it. He praises the military dictatorship as a superior form of government to democracy, and unlike Trump, who doesn't really have very many fixed beliefs, he just clings on to whatever belief of the moment is necessary to promote his only real belief, which is his himself. Bolsonaro is a true believer. He's like an actual ideologue um, in in so many ways. And his ideology comes not from this kind of 
new right of like, say, Marine Le Pen or Nigel Farage or even Donald Trump who care about immigration and Muslims and things of that nature, you never hear them talking about LGBTs or communism. Bolsonaro is like a throwback to the Cold War where he believes that the only way to secure freedom is to slaughter communists, by which he means anything vaguely associated with the left by the tens of thousands. And so they're much, much different. He does style himself consciously after Trump. They revere Trump, the Bolsonaro family does. So, you know, the ways they talk about the media, the wars they pick, the themes they kind of invoke, like he once Trump moved the, the Israeli embassy to Jerusalem, Bolsonaro immediately said he wanted to do it. He kind of follows Trump around like a little puppy dog. So there's definitely a conscious effort to model himself after Trump, but nobody in Brazil needs Trump to understand who Bolsonaro is because he's been on the fringes of Brazilian politics for so long. And that kind of authoritarian militarism is something obviously very familiar to Brazil because it has a very recent history of being governed by it. There have been a great many civil liberties concerns raised by the response to the pandemic, not only in the United States and Brazil, but around the world. But I think focusing on those two regions of the world might be useful here in the United States. The principal thing that folks have been animated by have been the lockdowns, these pretty extensive, in some cases, very detailed uh, restrictions on what people are allowed to do, these uh, stay-at-home orders in certain cases, uh, shuttering of businesses um, and churches. But beyond that, there there do appear to be a number of other issues, censorship concerns, um, some of which are related to, to governments themselves uh, entering, uh, issuing decrees with respect to the things that you can and cannot say on various social platforms or can and cannot publish uh, in order to try to take care of a quote-unquote fake news um, but also a growing trend amongst very prominent uh, social media companies, the likes of Twitter and Facebook um, and YouTube, which Google, uh, all of which have in some respects issued new uh, guidance with respect to their terms and services and have taken explicit action to restrict the sorts of things that their users can say um, in the midst of this uh, pandemic. I wonder... Uh, Glenn, if this is something that you've been tracking as well, I, I believe uh, Bolsonaro has had some of his content blocked on YouTube and Twitter. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a really fascinating question because most of my civil liberties work over the last 20 years, first as a lawyer and then as a journalist, was in the context of the war on terror, where you know one of the principal arguments was that the threat of islamic radicalism was being radically overstated to put the population in irrational fear that the odds of dying in an attack from islamic terrorists was lower than slipping in a bathtub and hitting your head or you know going out to a restaurant and contracting some kind of intestinal disease that killed you, that the way in which we were dismantling our basic freedoms and civil liberties framework was wildly out of proportion to what the actual threat was. And it was interesting for me, having instinctively reacted to attempts by governments and corporations to claim more authority for themselves in the name of managing risk, especially ones that are designed to restrict free speech and discourse, I remember in the first week or two when this pandemic really started to um, manifest as a very, at least a known threat, if not a, a terrifying one, that internally in my own brain, I started almost 
becoming way more receptive to civil liberties abridgments that I had thought would be impossible for me to ever even contemplate. And it took maybe a couple of weeks for me to recalibrate my thinking and to start to think more rationally about it. But we are designed Mm. to have this first order survival mechanism when we feel like a fear is proximate to crave protection and crave security. And governments know that. And I remember I had this epiphany after two weeks when I gave an interview to BuzzFeed, to Rosie Gray, who was asking me about my own internal process. And I, you know, was being honest and candid. And as usual, when you're honest and candid publicly, you end up getting screwed because the headline was something like civil libertarians, even like Glenn Greenwald now favor surveillance. And people were like, Oh, he's a fraud all along. Uh, oh, Look yeah. at me now. When all I was really saying was I, you know, if I, if, if even me yeah. was considering these kinds of things, because if you're imagine how many other people who don't have the same absolutism and instinctive aversion to these sorts of things, what they must be receptive to. And the example you cited, Camille, is a really instructive one because from the beginning, Bolsonaro has been disseminating what seems like pretty, not just blatant, but dangerous disinformation. He's been encouraging people to believe there are cures not only the ones Trump has been hyping, but others as well, which obviously can lead people to become reckless and think that there's no reason for them to not expose themselves to the virus because now there's a cure that the president of the country is promising will save them. Or just in general, encouraging people to go into crowds and trying to, you know, uh, demean the validity of social distancing. And then social media companies started deleting first the tweets of his sons, who aren't just his sons, but political officials in their own right. One is a senator, the other one is a congressman, and then actually deleted tweets of the president of the country himself. Mm -hmm. So whatever you think about Bolsonaro, and obviously I'm not a big fan of his, he's currently trying to imprison me, which generates some (laughs) negative feelings on my part. I don't don't begrudge you those (laughs) negative feelings. They they are there and I want to be honest about them. So, you know, obviously there's a part of you that thinks, oh, I think it's a good thing that millions of people who trust Bolsonaro or other people like him aren't going to be misled into believing that there's now a cure for this virus or that congregating in large uh, masses of people is no longer dangerous, right? Like you're happy that that message is being suppressed, but then you think about it a little bit more and you think maybe the greater danger is vesting power and control in Mark Zuckerberg and Google and Jack Dorsey to be the overlords of our discourse, and one of the interviews that I found most disturbing was, I think you had mentioned this to me a couple of days ago when we were talking about what we might discuss is that interview with the CEO of, of YouTube, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. she said, when asked what kinds of videos are you going to be deleting, she says the ones that deviate or are from or are in violation of the World Health Organization guidelines. And the reason that's so alarming is because all forms of human consensus, by definition, are, in, are not infallible. They're fallible. They need to be questioned all the time. They told us first not to wear a mask. Now they say to wear a mask. (laughs) They told us at first not to go to the ER until our symptoms were really grave. Now they're like, if you wait until your symptoms are grave, you're probably going to be dead on arrival. But there's a March 7th letter from the director general of, of, of the World Health Organization that was aggressively questioning whether asymptomatic carriers can even, are, are even capable of transmitting the virus. Exactly right. Kind of Continuing to reflect the Chinese government line that it's not really as lethal as the common flu. That was the consensus as reflected by the World Health Organization. And who wants tech companies mandating acquiescence 
to institutional consensus. Imagine how dangerous that is in all cases, let alone in a crisis. So I think those kinds of responses are starting to really deeply concern me. I said to Camille the other day, I said, you know, this is might be the thing that, you know, turns me um, into a, um, a Marxist or turns me into a leftist because I realized like seeing the, this quorum of people in, in Silicon Valley saying, you know, here's the information that the American people should know. And the WHO standards are the ones that we use when in early January, the WHO was saying that we don't even believe that this is like a human to human contact can actually transmit this virus. And so, you know, at that point, I'm, I'm glad that they weren't, you know, adhering to these standards. And as you know, you said, Glenn, um, there is a certain part of you that wants to say, yeah, no, get that shitty information out of of the mainstream, particularly when it's when it's uh, propagated by somebody like Bolsonaro, who has an enormous following and obviously his diehard and fanatical supporters and the power that he possesses too, particularly to like try to put somebody like you in prison is terrifying. And it seems like a good idea. But, you know, it's like, I mean, I wish the ACLU would get back to where it was when it was doing things like, you know, the Skokie case is that these are the most horrifying people uh, on the planet and they should have a right to have their horrifying views out there. And I trust the rest of us to, you know, beat those things into submission. And I trust yeah. smart people to go and, and, and counter those views and not let them spread. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, I see this all the time of it, particularly now with the COVID stuff. There's a lot of stuff that's on the kind of border and we don't know the answer to it. And I have been making the argument on this, on this show because I've been doing a piece for the, for, for the Showtime show that we do about uh, COVID-19 and about the economic effects of it. And I'm, I keep on arguing. It's like, you know what? It's amazing that people on the right are the ones that are, you know, have these kind of heterodox views about it and are saying, bring people back to work. And it's presumably because Donald Trump is, you know, the one thing he really had going for him was the low unemployment numbers and he wants to get that back down. Okay, fine. But it is actually a left-wing issue because people like us are not hurting. People in the media who have blue check marks are not saying, I don't know where I'm going to pay for my next meal. I was with a woman the other day who was an undocumented worker from Ecuador, has been here for 22 years, is not eligible for a $1,200 check, is not eligible for unemployment, and is like, I want to, I, I want to weigh the risk and I want to go back. And these are the things that concern me. And to put that view out there, to say that, look, I think it is 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 one of those common ground issues. If people who are distrustful of government diktats and other people who say, you know, this is really hurting the working class more than anybody else, and you know, rather than sort of talking about it on the Zoom call on their podcast and they have a full bank account, but putting that stuff out there when there's some Mandarin in Palo Alto saying, no, that's not right. We're going to take that down. It's terrifying. And particularly when you saw that video of those two guys and I watched the video and I was like, mm, I don't agree with this. The guys in Bakersfield, yeah, I thought, I, yeah, I thought they were, this is totally wrong and they're missing a whole bunch of things. But I thought that because I watched the video and then 5 million views later, they took it down and they acknowledged it. They didn't make up some bullshit excuse and say, oh, we did this because it didn't blah, blah. No, they said, we, this is misinformation. We're taking it down. It's terrifying. I, I want to form what Michael just said into a question for Glenn, uh, which is to say uh, that uh, at least part of uh, my theory of the case of where we are right now on a, a bunch of different ways and not just about coronavirus and not just about the United States, but just everywhere in the rise of populism of both right and left um, is that it's the, the the ramping towards this moment is where a lot of errors were made. So specifically on speech, I think about 2019, 
it felt like a competition to see uh, who was going to call for more censoriousness, the left or the right in the United States. People just like begging Facebook or begging Twitter to, to like kick Donald <laughs> Trump off of Twitter. Uh-huh. Journalism yeah. professors doing this daily. Um, uh, the right uh, uh, coming in suddenly uh, uh, getting super interested in censoriousness from your perspective as a, as a free speech hard ass. Uh, and someone who's got an interesting semi-outsider view uh, looking onto the United States. Where have we gone wrong in the way that we've conceived or had speech discourse before this all came out and exposed it even more? Yeah, you know, I think that's the fascinating point about this whole trend toward elevating censorship powers in the hands of these tech companies, which is ordinarily censors are the people who acquire sensorial power in order to enhance their own control and authority. That's typically the reason governments do it and seize it. They invent theories as to why they need it. Here we have exactly the opposite dynamic, which is these tech companies never wanted the power or the responsibility to regulate speech. And maybe that was due to some kind of libertarian philosophy that prevailed in Silicon Valley, but it was much more because of self-interest. They wanted there to be this model that Facebook and Google and Twitter were a lot more like a just a neutral public utility or telephone line like AT&T. So for example, if Milo Yiannopoulos or Richard Spencer or Jair Bolsonaro calls someone on a telephone to organize a rally in defense of some hideous political agenda or disseminates disinformation. Nobody expects AT&T to terminate the call or to terminate the service or hold them responsible. Nobody holds AT&T responsible because the idea is a content neutral form that just offers the ability for human beings to communicate with one another. That was the model that Facebook and Twitter and Google saw themselves as being, which is why that that was the promise of the internet early on. You know, you guys were asking about that CompuServe uh, mischief that I used to do. There was zero connection to my actual identity. We all adopted pseudonyms. There was no IP addresses. Nobody could trace. That was the the beauty of the internet was it was like the first liberation in our lifetimes from constant corporate and government surveillance mm-hmm. and monitoring and control. And it was again, that's why it was so liberating. And now all of that has changed. And what is particularly nauseating to me is that this censorship obligation is one not that social media companies agitated to wield, but was really foisted upon them. Yes, in part by the left. And part of that was the perception that what caused Hillary Clinton to lose in 2016 was not, of course, as we all know, any flaws of any kind in Hillary Clinton or her campaign (laughs) or the Democratic Party or its neoliberal ideology. It was because of this list of villains, one of which was Facebook and Twitter for not doing more to keep information off of the internet that was damaging to her campaign. And there are reporters like Oliver Darcy at CNN and a bunch of them, Brian Stelter, who are like little internet tattletales. They like (laughs) go around like trawling on the internet for like posts that violate the rules. And then they go on Twitter, they go on CNN and say, hey, Facebook, you're allowing this Alex Jones video to continue to be on YouTube, even though it, you know, and they, they demanded and shamed these companies into censoring to the point where now these companies are hiring longtime DC political operatives. And of course, when corporations do that, 
they're going to embrace orthodoxy as the permissible standard because that's the safest standard to embrace. That's always what corporations want is to avoid mainstream controversy. One of the things that I, one of the times I first noticed this was when I looked at the censorship practices of Facebook in the Middle East, specifically with the Israeli-Palestine conflict, because what I found was the Israeli government now frequently submits demands to Facebook to delete Palestinian pages, not just ordinary citizens, but journalists, news outlets on the grounds that they're inciting terrorism, by which the Israeli government means they're criticizing our occupation a little too harshly. And of course, the Palestinians do the same with Israelis because there's lots of Israeli pages that glorify violence against Palestinians. And in 98 or 99% of the cases, Facebook obeys the request of the Israeli government to delete pages of Palestinians. And in virtually none of the cases, deletes Israeli pages, even overtly inciting violence against Palestinians. Why? Because it's way safer politically and financially for them to side with the more powerful government over the less powerful, more marginalized people. That's the mentality of all big corporations. And if you vest censorship power in them, it's not going to be this like magnanimous, benevolent left-wing fantasy that a lot of people on the left have that, oh, they're going to do it to protect, to, to prevent hate speech from targeting the marginalized. They don't give a shit for the marginalized populations. They're going to do it to empower power centers further and gut what was supposed to be what made the internet such an important innovation, which was the ability to equalize power so that you could be heard even if you can't afford a printing press or a TV studio. And that's, I I think that this pandemic is really accelerating and exacerbating those dangers. Face, uh, no, YouTube uh, publishes this report, this transparency report, which transparently shows that it buckles to foreign governments regularly. (laughs) And this happens, uh, last time I looked at it was maybe four or five years ago. And I think that people are upset about it. And I actually pitched a story to Newsweek um, about this when I was working there. And they would not, I knew someone within this unit at uh, YouTube and they wouldn't allow me even the, the, even, you know, sort of proximate access to some media person. Cause I made the argument. I was like, you guys are just a parallel state department, aren't you? I mean, you're interfacing with foreign governments all the time. This was after the innocence of Muslims video, I believe that, uh, that uh, came up in, in, in uh, relation to the um, uh, Libya stuff, the Benghazi stuff. So I was looking into that and just looking into how, how what they responded. They, they took it down in Egypt and the rest of it. And I think the number one country at that time, and this is, of course, predates Bolsonaro, was Brazil, that there were a number of requests coming from the Brazilian government, or if it was courts, I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, once you allow uh, governments to submit this stuff and say, here, here's like a cost-free way of getting your enemy's stuff off of our platform, which is the biggest platform in your country, they do it and they do it with impunity. And so in Brazil, I mean, I saw that was, I rem- I'm just remembering this and I, I, I hope that I'm right about this. But in Brazil, it's an interesting thing. And I wonder about the perspective that is given you as an American journalist who's a sharp elbowed journalist and who releases uh, uh, stuff that is leaked to you that is in- incredibly useful for the general population and inc- incredibly irritating for the, go- the governments that, that, that it's exposing is that, you know, I, I, th- I assume it was a fr- friend of yours too, but a friend of yours, I, I think, and your husband was murdered, who's an activist in Brazil. You are being threatened with jail in Brazil. You were physically attacked on a radio broadcast in Brazil. I mean, it puts something of the Trump stuff in perspective. And man, is a complete buffoon 
and and it, probably the worst president we've had in, in, you know, one of the worst presidents in our history, for sure. But, it, you know, all this kind of specter of horrible fascism and the rest of it that's coming because he talks about fake news. Yeah, I mean, it's irritating and everything. But in Brazil, when I see these Google reports about the number of of things that are asked to be taken down and the experiences that you've had and the people close to you have had, it strikes me that that political culture is, is, you know, just very, very, very different than the U S and how does somebody like you survive in it? It's one of the reasons why I have such unbridled contempt and loathing for this whole like hashtag resistance discourse and have from the beginning, I saw some tweet, by some like prominent pro-Democrat, pro-Biden commentator the other day referring to somebody who had abandoned the movement because they had become a Bernie supporter and a Biden critic. And they began by saying, because he and I worked for years in the resistance, as though they were like fucking freedom fighters in Paris resisting the Nazi (laughs) occupation of France. You know, it's so offensive to people who are actually facing tyranny to watch these, like, what reporters have been even prosecuted, let alone imprisoned, under Trump? They have spent these three years very flamboyantly depicting themselves, journalists have, like, at CNN and um, MSNBC and the networks, as being constantly imperiled by this vicious authoritarian assault on a free press. What rights don't they have? They bash the shit out of Trump every single day right to his face. And the only consequences they ever face are occasionally some insulting adolescent tweet from Trump about like Jim Acosta or Wolf Blitzer. Like who among us hasn't done that? That's not an assault on a free press. And, you know, so when you look at what actual authoritarianism and tyranny is, and obviously my experience in currently being prosecuted for the reporting that we did, for the fact that neither my husband or I have had been able to leave our house for over a year without armed guards and armored vehicles because of very credible death threats arising almost entirely out of my reporting, although also my husband's political work, it becomes even more offensive. You know, it's just kind of like martyrdom complex, like this psychodrama that they all want to live through referring to Trump as a dictator. And maybe like in Trump's perfect world, he would want to put Maggie Haberman in jail. I don't really know, but he can't. So, and he isn't. So, you know, it doesn't matter. And I do think those kinds of things need to be put in perspective. But on the censorship question, obviously it comes from the right as well, wanting to imprison journalists because of the stories that they reveal that reflect poorly on a right-wing government is its own form of censorship that's kind of more classic and more brute case. And there's an example where I'm really grateful that I have the internet to denounce it where these stories that we are publishing and these documents that we're disclosing can be freely put on the internet and the Brazilian government can't do anything in order to take it off. And obviously the work that I did with Edward Snowden, I remember when he came to me and I met him for the first time in Hong Kong, he was like this 29-year-old kid, radically different than what I had imagined. So I really wanted to know what is your motive for being willing to risk the rest of your life, literally decades, you know, in an incredibly harsh national security prison in the United States, And what he told me was exactly that, that he grew up kind of like as this lower middle class kid with no ability to travel the world. He never left Southern Virginia or Northern Maryland. And the way in which he explored the world and like formed his own identity and exposed himself to different ideas was through the internet, 
which only has value if it can remain completely free. And he wasn't willing to know for the rest of his life that he had the opportunity to defend it and out of cowardice and fear failed to do so. So that's why, you know, censorship, whether it comes from the right or the left is so menacing because it prevents the people who don't wield the greatest power from having some fighting chance against those who do. And I I think we've we've spent a a fair amount of time talking about people who have dubious views, um, but it's worth acknowledging perhaps a bit more explicitly the various ways in which saying exactly the right thing, perhaps at the wrong time, might get you into trouble. If YouTube, for example, were to carry out their policy as described, what you say must be consistent with the World Health Organization's current recommendations, they would have, at the same time China was engaged in this, been going out of their way to take down any video that a Chinese doctor might have recorded suggesting that there was asymptomatic spread taking place in China um, at the time that the World Health Organization and the Chinese government were both denying as much. Um, which I think is is actually pretty striking. That's the end result of that policy. And a bit closer to home in the last week, uh, last week anyways, towards the end of it, we had the Trump scandal of the week, the UV light and the bleach related comments that he made. And without completely unpacking all of that, it does turn out that there is a small biotech company that is developing a UV light therapy device. And my suspicion is that the reason Trump mentioned it is probably because someone mentioned the the development of this device to him. And Trump, in his typical fashion, perhaps decides to repackage this as if it's his own idea. Uh, But in either case, the end result of this is he says something clownish. He is clowned for it. But this tiny company that is developing this innovative, new, perhaps we should describe it as novel, potential therapy for COVID, where they do, in fact, take a device, put it down a trach tube and use filtered UV light to eradicate COVID inside of your lungs. They can't publish videos about their device on YouTube. They've published them and had them taken down multiple times, both on YouTube and on Vimeo. And the the only thing that I've really seen published about this is an opinion piece by the CEO of the company that was in the Wall Street Journal earlier this week, essentially just indicating that this is really hard for us because the political environment is such that being loosely associated with something the president said, which essentially sounds stupid, not is false or fictitious, but sounds stupid, has created a circumstance where they simply can't publish this material online. Maybe that's not significant. It seems like a really big deal to me. Um, and if, it, if it's happening there, um, I have to imagine that there are plenty of other places where it might happen. So I'd, I'd like to move a bit beyond the censorship issues narrowly that are occurring at this phase of the pandemic to what might be coming next uh, as we move away from shelter at place, stay at home orders to trying to reopen the economy, reopen society uh, and restore people's liberties. There is a lot of conversation about tracking and tracing, and there is a universe of very different kind of concerns, um, mostly related to privacy, um, but certainly beyond that as well. Um, and I, I wonder how you all are, are thinking about those issues if you've begun to think about them. I, I have this new 
YouTube program I had mentioned in the second show I did was on civil liberties and the coronavirus. And one of the people I interviewed was, was Edward Snowden about exactly those questions. Because for a long time, or not for a long time, but for what seems like a long time, because every day in quarantine seems like about two, two months. <laughs> but early on in the pandemic, maybe like in February, the model that was being held up as, was as kind of the sweet spot that avoided the really harsh and brutal repression of China, but then at the same time avoided the you know, uncontrolled spread of freer societies that don't have respect for their central authorities like Italy and Spain and other countries in Western Europe was South Korea, which relied heavily on very advanced technological contact tracing, which is a form of surveillance. And I asked Snowden about that. And, and he said all of the same concerns that he has about constructing a surveillance state apply equally to that. And for me, I think the starting point has to be that whatever measure that you acquiesce to or even advocate when it comes to putting enhanced power in the hands of states that you think you're justifying on a temporary basis because of a temporary threat or a temporary fear almost never is temporary. Like if you go back and look at the 2001 discourse about the Patriot Act, which a lot of people have forgotten, even with the World Trade Center in rubble, People regarded the Patriot Act as a really radical, disturbing, and severe departure from the American tradition about privacy and freedom. And the main argument made in its defense was, oh, don't worry, this is just temporary. Until we get the the threat of Islamic radicalism under control, we have a sunset provision where it it expires in four years. 19 years later, we don't even talk about Al-Qaeda anymore or even ISIS let alone the groups that formed after the 9-11 attack. And not only is the Patriot Act nowhere close to being retracted or rescinded, it's just a permanent part of our political framework. It's just in the woodwork now. Whenever it comes up for a vote, it's quick, it's immediate. It's like a 91-7 vote. Same thing with the authorization to use military force that just gave the government carte blanche and lateral discretion to determine who was, quote, responsible for the 9-11 attack and use violence against them. And that's been used again, 19 years later, against groups that didn't even exist at the time of 9-11. So any temporary increase in government power is not temporary but permanent, almost inevitably, and it almost virtually expands wildly beyond its original scope. So people are talking a lot about the 1950 uh, Defense Act that enables the president to commandeer industry that was used during the Korean War that they want Trump to use originally. It had a very limited date, which was only for national defense, meaning essentially a war, to force factories to produce steel and armaments. And now it's been expanded to basically mean anything, which is why Trump can use it and is being encouraged to use it in the name of fighting a pandemic, which is now part of national defense. So not only does it stay permanent, but it just inexorably expands. So obviously, contact tracing and the like is preferable to, say, building fever prisons, which are called hospitals like they did in China and forcibly dragging people away from their homes and then forcing the rest of the family members to remain isolated to the point where they starve to death. But I do think that it is time to start questioning now that we have more data about how widespread this virus is, about how many asymptomatic carriers there are, about the potential to identify people who have had the virus and recovered from it through antibody tests how drastic and draconian responses are now in terms of what's justified. I certainly am and have been an advocate of isolation. I myself am isolating, and I wouldn't do that if I were eager to send other people who don't have the luxury of isolating back to work. 
But I do think that open debate, mm-hmm. maybe there are certain places that are more amenable to the spread of the virus because of density, like New York, whereas other places, I think, though, I don't have answers to that, but I think a free debate on those questions is vital precisely so that we don't just start acquiescing to whatever new proposals there are for heightened government authority because we're all so eager and desperate to leave our homes. And that goes back to, even though Camille said you were transitioning from that topic, to the whole free debate and censorship question because that ongoing ability to engage in these questions uh, is crucial to avoiding terrible outcomes, right? Like authoritarian governments are not just more repressive, but usually inept. Why? Because permissible debate is necessary to find good solutions on top of being more ethical. And the more we close off debate and stigmatize people who question the consensus, the worst solutions we're probably going to end up having. Yeah, I went back uh, and uh, for the purposes of trying to un- to just count up the amount of money that's gone out the door uh, in Washington, D.C. over the last two months, which it's it's not exact, but my running tally is two point nine eight four trillion dollars. Um, uh, some of this is in foregone revenue. Some of it's in loan guarantees. So it's it's close to three trillion dollars. So but in looking at that, I just went back and looked at all the votes and things uh, uh, like that. And I think the total number of votes in the Senate for the four main bills that uh, that uh, uh, have been passed as part of the three trillion dollar thing. I think if you add them all up, it's in four votes. So that's like 100 senators math um, might be 13. Like it's it, it's it, it takes me straight back to September of 2001 in like every vote was everybody to one. And that one person or those two people were absolutely vilified. I mean, Thomas Massey, uh, you know, everyone has since forgotten him already. But for about uh, a week and a half there, he was the the hate bear of the entire political and journalistic universe. And uh, I think history will probably vindicate uh, his, you know, delaying that vote by 10 hours or whatever the hell he accomplished. All he wanted was a roll call vote. He's like, hey, before we give away <laughs> six trillion dollars, let's at least go on record about who's in favor and who's. But let me ask you, Matt, now that the dogmatic libertarian has weighed in on this question. <laughs> Thank you. Thank so, you. Like in a situation you like mispronounced Camille in a situation like this where you can at least make a very compelling argument that it does make sense for the government to force people to remain at home, leaving aside the question of whether they ought to arrest people for leaving, but like at least strongly encourage and advise people to do so and that it's rational for people to do so. What do you see as the role of, is that a legitimate government function for the government to take people's tax money and then distribute it to those who aren't working in the name of having people not be exposed to the virus and also not starving to death? To me, the most defensible um, uh, expenditure from government would be in two categories. One is saying, hey, this is a once a century stress on the healthcare system, which might have already be, might be past us now. Like uh, like the we had capacity issues in New York, freaked out, ramped up and they weren't actually used. Uh, I think at some point they were doubling up on ventilators. But for the most part, the Javits Center wasn't used other things. But that to me is a legitimate form of both uh, state, local, national government of like, oh, my God, we have to prepare capacity. And you do that either by throwing money at the problem or in many cases, and specifically in this case, of removing regulations for the problem, some combination thereof. That's factor one. Factor two is probably more expensive is you have a responsibility. I think if you shut down, you tell people I'm going to violate your civil liberties about what you can you know, communicate with and have uh, intercourse with people, you're going to shut down their livelihoods. Arguably, you have a responsibility to send them a check. Um, the thing about the, the, um, uh, 
three trillion dollars, which I haven't done the math recently, but that's probably a little bit more than eight thousand dollars per U.S. resident is that what do what do the individual human beings get out of that eight thousand dollar per person thing? Mm -hmm. They might get a twelve hundred dollar check. That's it. That says to me. What the hell's happening to that other amount of money? I mean, uh, Justin Amash, who announced this week that he's running for president, um, I find his argument persuasive, which is, OK, we're doing this stimulus. Make it all a check that you send to people. Just do it like that. Like tide it over. I, I forget which uh, which Nordic country we're supposed to model <laughs> ourselves after today, but I think it was uh, Denmark. It's mostly Sweden. Um, uh, they <laughs> no, but in this case, uh, uh, talking about how to deal with. Stimulus payments and, you know, uh, shutdown payments. And what they did is they just basically uh, bribed everyone to stay home so that the people wouldn't be fired. Um, they keep their jobs. So uh, Denmark, last I looked, their unemployment rate went from like 4.2 percent to 4.4 percent. And ours went from three and a half percent to what's it now? 16. It's going to be 20 pretty soon. And it's going to be much harder to reverse. So I think um, just from a pragmatic point of view, let alone the kind of the, the philosophical point of view, but pra uh, pragmatically send people checks more than let's get the Los Angeles Lakers a bailout. Let's yeah. let's bail out the airlines again. Um, you know, uh, it's it sucks for the airlines, but just <laughs> like, you know, gas prices or terrorism, it's part of their business model to say that. You know, if you put people in a metal tube and, and fly them around, occasionally there's mm -hmm. going to be one of these bad things that happen. Um, and uh, and I don't think that it's the federal government's responsibility to be the backstop on that system, on the banking system, on the oil finance system. When prices tank, all this stuff, let alone goddamn cruise yeah. industry, which is even based here because <laughs> the Jones Act, whatever. So, uh, yeah, send people checks. The rest of it's all garbage. Yeah, I don't think I see many people. I'm sure there they're, they're people. I mean, we've gotten some emails um, yelling at us for something like this, but uh, are saying that don't give people money when you're telling them they cannot work. You're, you're doing you're you're firing them from their job. That's what the federal government is doing. What does worry me and it should worry everybody. And one would hope that there was a kind of bipartisan unity. There certainly isn't in Washington because everybody's, you know, they have their reasons for doing this. But there, as Glenn pointed out, there is, of course, the do something, do anything uh, instinct that that overwhelmed everybody after 9-11. I was a part of that. And thankfully, you know, a lot of my views have changed since then. But, you know, there's a lot of warning, warning in that. And so when you see, well, we'll just pass it. We don't we just we have to get it through. We have to get it through. And then there is actually some power to now the Internet, for instance, that shaming can actually correct really, really bad policy. So the number of people in this PPP thing, which was the Pay Paycheck Protection Act, which was supposed to be only for small businesses, right? And that would be 75% of that money had to go to paying their employees. And then within days, you see the number of enormous companies um, where they are like, you know, uh, which were the ones here? It was like the hamburger place here. What is that called? Shake Shack. Uh, Shake Shack, um, uh, Potbelly, like all these big companies. And I think it was the Wall Street Journal that, that looked at the number of companies that got money in that uh, $450 billion who were publicly traded companies. And there were lots of them. And so it is, it's not rife with fraud in the sense that you think back to Ronald Reagan talking about welfare queens or something. These are corporate welfare queens. And that is the actual enormous problem in this. And one would hope that that would be a, a unifying fe feature amongst people and the kind of 
I don't know, Thomas Massey right is one way of saying it, or sort of libertarian, you know, leaning right. And people on the left, I mean, there's not, you know, when we took a little break there, I, I mentioned Steve Bannon. There is a lot of unity, I think, from people when you, when I talk to, um, uh, people like, you know, members of the squad, like three of whom I've, I've, I've interviewed. And when I talk to people like uh, Tom Massey, you're getting a lot of the same stuff when you're talking about economics and particularly just on this, on this thing. Yeah. Obviously there's enormous differences, but on this thing right now, we should all attack ruthlessly and actually protect people whose jobs lost. They, they, they were lost by government fiat. I mean, was that the right thing to do? Well, I mean, I think there's some debate about, about certain elements of it, but yeah, I mean, I think there are certain elements that it was the right thing to do. Um, so yeah, we have to absolutely take care of those people. I will make the unpopular case. I'm the least libertarian person here. So <laughs> no, that's true. That includes Glenn. <laughs> I, I will make the wildly unpopular case um, that it is not the role of government to do this. Um, I, I do think, you know, playing the role of firefighter when in fact there is, you know, a raging inferno is, is almost is certainly appropriate. Um, and you can figure out who pays for that afterwards. Um, I just don't think that's the case here. There was not, in fact, a federally mandated stay at home order. This was happening at the state levels. And perhaps the states then have some obligation to compensate people uh, for for requiring them to stay at home. Uh, I think the the only thing that we can really say about these federal programs um, is, you know, in some extreme circumstances, there are people who, you know, definitely benefited materially from receiving these checks but this was a primarily political exercise, like giving checks to virtually everyone um, with with sort of some modest restrictions. Um, and then these other like massive uh, bailouts like the airline bailout and the the rather bizarrely designed PPP loan program. I think that's three P's. Maybe it was only two. It's three P's. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I have a very hard time seeing those programs as being particularly useful. And even the, the particular policy that we selected, a broadly endorsed strategy of encouraging everyone to stay at home almost indefinitely, uh, because it, in many cases early on, there wasn't a, a very specific timetable offered. Apparently, folks are able to renew these timetables for as long as they want in a way that makes me pretty uncomfortable. Um, it doesn't necessarily seem like an obviously good strategy to me uh, in the long run or even in the medium run. And if that's the case, then a, a, a posture by which we can simply subsidize that sort of policy without really debating it or discussing it uh, extensively like actually seems like a net bad. So I think it's probably not appropriate for government to do. Um, and worse than that, I think it's probably harmful for them to simply be able to do it, um, especially under circumstances like these. So unpopular case made. I'm not even sure I buy all of that, That's good but I think I do. <laughs> it, well, I mean, you know, it, I do think it goes back though to to what Michael was saying earlier, which is there is a small group of people um, members of whom I think constitute the entirety of this call, um, <laughs> certainly the majority, who have the luxury of not having to leave their house in order to earn their livelihood. I know I was working at home and have worked at home for many years. So my ability to work isn't impeded, really. I mean, I can't 
fly and go give a speech or whatever. But 95% of the work that I was already doing, I can still continue to do because I always did it at home. It's true for a lot of journalists, true for a lot of other professionals, but there's a huge part of the workforce, obviously, that doesn't have that luxury where they really are faced with the choice of either staying at home and without a government check, starving and having their entire family starve, literally, not dramatically, or going out and exposing not just themselves, but everyone with whom they live to a what obviously is a a, a dangerous and 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 um, lethal virus and dangerous even when it doesn't kill. So, you know, it's hard to, I think, make the case that there's no room for the state. I do, though, think that the point that Michael alluded to is really an interesting one, which is, you know, I remember when I first started writing early on uh, in my writing career, 2005, 2006, when I was writing about Bush, Cheney, executive power abuses. And it was always, I, I, I didn't really, I hadn't been writing about politics for a long time. I didn't consider myself a leftist at all. Um, I just been practicing constitutional law. I was just kind of applying those principles to politics. And because it was against Bush and Cheney, by chance, I got labeled a leftist because anyone who criticized Bush and Cheney was on the left, but you know, I was saying things like, hey, I don't think we should put people in prison without like actually charging them with a crime and proving their guilt, things that I thought were really uncontroversial. And my dream was always to make that transcendent of ideology and politics, that that should be a value that the right and the left could agree on because everyone has an interest and having the government not be able to do that because even if you love the president one day, tomorrow you might hate the president. I like was cheered on by liberal blogs, but at the same time doing a lot of work with Cato. So I got to like realize my dream a little bit. But I think, you know, now, 15 years later, this political realignment really is the reality, even though people aren't fully ready to accept it yet, because we're so ingrained with this tribalistic right versus left uh, passion, which is why a lot of people on the left have been going on Tucker Carlson why there was a lot of convergence on things like Russiagate and suspicion and skepticism about pronouncements by the CIA or anonymous Pentagon leaks. But in particular now, seeing how both in 2008, when there was this emergency bailout package, and again now in 2020, in the name of the pandemic, the vast, vast, vast majority of the money went not to individuals, ordinary citizens in the working class, but to huge corporations that fund both political parties and that's why you can have, you know, AOC denouncing the tax breaks given to Amazon, one of the richest countries in the world, to get them to New York. And then Tucker Carlson doing a whole segment on why she's right. Because I do think politics is transforming now very palpably and visibly from that kind of standard left-right dogma into an insider-outsider anti-establishment, pro-establishment politics because people see that even if you're at Reason Magazine and love capitalism, what the U.S. government is doing isn't capitalism at all. It's crony capitalism, which people on the left will say is a redundancy or people on the right will say is a perversion, but whatever is true, it's what we have. So anytime there's money that goes out of Washington, it's going to go to the people that control the parties, which are these huge corporations. And unless you're Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer or people who think like them, you're going to be revolted by that for the same reasons and to the same extent. And I think that's really shifting how our politics is is framed. I interviewed uh, Justin Amash on Tuesday night. We're recording this on a win- Thursday. Um, and uh, that was part, that's hard, part of his pitch. And he's repeating it in every uh, interview context. Is part that of his pitch the, for what, Matt? Well, uh, <laughs> 
for the presidency of running. He's running for president. Uh, thanks. Uh, and that uh, the uh, the bailout stimulus stuff is crony capitalism. It's it's it really awfully done, awfully administered. It was tailored in a way so that Republicans could say that they were favoring their constituents. Democrats could say that they were favoring theirs, but it was not nothing universalized about it. Um, so he's clear that's going to be part of how he tries to distinguish himself from Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump. My question to you, Glenn, you sound even kind of more optimistic about the potential of that making a new politics available than I am. But but do you think that that has any uh, chance to adhere itself or to be exploited by either an Amash or, you know, a Howie Hawkins um, uh, presidential campaign or uh, just anything in opposition to Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Yeah, I mean, I don't know for the 2020 election, but obviously like a lot of people on what I call the the the, the left are excited about somebody like Josh Hawley, who's talking a lot about challenging tech monopolies. And, you know, I do think one of the overlooked trends of the new, for lack of a better term, alt-right ascension in Europe and even in the US is that it does tend to be economically populist at least in its rhetoric if not in its government if not in its governance so like when marine le pen ran for president of france she ran to the to the left not just of macron and not just um the center right parties but even to the socialists saying that you know sort of the the opinion i think it's a very tucker carlson kind of way of looking at things. It's definitely a Nigel Farage way of thinking about things, which is let's close the borders and keep people from coming to our country and taking advantage of our benefits. Because if we let them do that, we're going to run out because it's finite. But once we do that, let's treat our citizens, our working class better and eliminate corporatist domination and control. Because up until now, these corporations that are transnational in identity and in allegiance don't have any concern for you, but they control the government. And that's who our politicians care for. So even Trump, when he was running in 2016, said, it's outrageous to think about cutting Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. We might even be you know, thinking about expanding them. That was kind of the Steve Bannon um, approach, which was let's do the first bill as a bipartisan infrastructure program where we spend a shitload of money, create jobs with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Let's then close the borders and then protect Social Security and Medicare. Because of Jared Kushner and other influences, Bannon lost out on that. But that is a really potent political package that A, the left doesn't have an answer to. Um, you know, you can just scream racism all the time about the immigration part of that vision. But even Obama and Hillary have said, if you don't have a better answer than just screaming racism to immigration concerns, you're going to lose because people are very concerned about it for non-racist reasons. But if you don't have a populist answer, if your answer to populism is Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton and neoliberalism and the continuation of this political order that people have know have destroyed huge amounts of jobs, it's hard to see how you're going to compete with that. Um, and, you know, I think that's why Trump, even in 2016, said he thinks the best candidate that he would have had the hardest time beating was Bernie Sanders, because Bernie Sanders speaks that message, whereas the easiest person said Steve Bannon was Hillary because she's the embodiment of NAFTA 
globalism and status quo institutions. So I think um, there's probably not going to be with Trump and Biden any real alternative or even these third parties because third parties can't compete. Although I do think Trump rhetorically is going to run to the left of Biden on things like trade and um, corporatism, because uh, even though Trump signed this huge, you know, tax cut that benefited the wealthy um, because he knows that's a winning political scheme. But once you get a kind of non clownish politician capable of articulating that political uh, approach in a compelling way, I think it's going to be very dangerous for Democrats who right now have no answer to it. In part because they're funded by Silicon Valley and Wall Street and they can't escape the dogma and orthodoxy is demanded of those funders. And keeping in mind that Bernie Sanders downplayed this, uh, you know, in the last campaign, but it had been quite vocal about saying that restrictions on immigration, uh, he favored certain restrictions because, I mean, his argument, uh, not a racist argument, uh, was that, uh, you know, more immigrants depress working class wages. And that's, you know, a pretty common argument. It used to be a common argument. And to your point about Europe, it's, this is something that predated actually the migrant crisis. The migrant crisis allowed a lot of those far right parties in Europe to grab a greater share of power. But, you know, in, you know, 2004 or five, the, the, the uniting principle of all those parties was, you know, their anti-Islam stuff, of course, which kind of has, you know, disappeared a little bit. But it was, it was with the exception of one party, it was economics and it was the Norwegian far right party, the progress party is a Thatcherite party. The rest of them were socialist parties. I mean, they, and, and as Gunn pointed out, far to the left of many of the mainstream social democratic parties. And that was a formula that worked for them, particularly in France, where you could make the case consistently going to the south of France and other places where there used to be, or even in the north of France, but there's industrial France, where all these factories had left and make the, the anti-trade case. Now, I will, I, I'm still a very pro-trade person. But, you know, when I, and, and I've mentioned this story a bunch when, in 2016, when then I, when I went to the, the, uh, because you still have your job. Yeah, I do. Of course. Yeah. I mean, once it goes, I'm, I'm moving to Brazil and going to be the co-host of your new show. Um, <laughs> your hardcore protectionism overnight. I'm completely selfish. But, uh, when I went to the uh, steelworkers union, I think it was in Indiana and they had pictures of Bernie Sanders on the wall and everybody I talked to was uh, this was after the uh, uh, Hillary had grabbed the nomination? They were all going to vote for Trump, mm. and I was like, "We're like, oh, this is perfect. We can shoot here." And we were shooting in there, and everyone's in there. It's a great place. They're all you know fantastic people. And I grew up in a, a union household. They're all like guys smoking cigarettes, and they all have mustaches. They all look like Lech Valencia. It's great, and uh, they all loved <laughs> Bernie. And they were like, and it was so funny because you see these people, you're like, oh, they're just working class people from Indiana. They don't know what they're talking about. Bernie speaks this language. No, no, no. They all knew that Hillary Clinton had called, um, uh, what's it called? The, uh, the tr TPP, TPP as the gold standard. And they were like, no, no, no. This is NAFTA. This is TPP. We loathe this woman. And the only reason we'll vote for Trump is because Hillary Clinton stole, <laughs> stole the primary from Bernie. And I was like, wait, you guys like that sort of disheveled, socialist uh, from like Vermont who has never lost that Brooklyn accent that's resonating with you. And they're like, yeah, of course. And so like, it didn't surprise me. I think in 2017 when I thought, like, okay, everything is kind of shifting amongst conservatives. And we had a conversation in the last podcast about this and about Tucker Carlson. Um, and a friend of mine, by the way, gave me a very hard time about this. Cause I, 
I wasn't hard enough about Tucker's immigration stuff. But I said, no, no, we're just talking about Tucker's transformation. But his transformation didn't actually. Anytime you bring up Tucker, you have to insert the phrase white nationalist. That's the rule. I just want (laughs) you to make sure you don't deviate from that. You get a little bit of trouble about this, don't you, Glenn? Tiny bit, tiny bit. Um, So that's why I know the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to help you out. So no, I mean, none of this really surprised me. And, and I think for, for people who are more on the libertarian end of this, it, um, it terrifies me in some ways. Um, because I think Steve Bannon is wrong about a lot of his, um, economic, uh, vision for America. And I think the same thing, uh, of Bernie Sanders. That said, during the primary, I did get a lot of email from listeners who said, are you, did you become a Sanders supporter? And I'm like, no, I just like the guy. I just have this affection for him, despite the fact that I sort of broadly disagree with him. There's another commonality uh, with European um, parties, uh, Le Penites type of uh, parties and the and the right. And I think there's some overlap with the Bernie Sanders um, uh, in general and all over the globe. When you see populism arising, populism of both the right and left uh, increasingly um they will em- embrace anti-political correctness. Very much so. Like it's uh, like, and that will be a, a strong element of the campaign. Absolutely. We say what you think uh, and we don't care what the elites tell us we can and cannot say. Um, curious, Glenn, when you obviously you brush up against people, you just mentioned the Tucker white nationalist thing. You certainly observe the kind of uh, increase of wokeification on the very online and also just, you know, commentary at journalistic left in America over the past five years. How do you assess the way that the people who are increasingly making those arguments are understanding or not understanding of the way that sounds like to Michael's Lequilessa workers in Indiana? They don't like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that people pay lip service to the fact that people who work in journalism for a living, who as a result reside, you know, as a cliche on, on, on the East and West coast and large cities who are typically interacting with other professionals and college or postgraduates are wildly out of touch with the working class, right? That's just like a cliche. If you say it, you sound banal, but obviously 2016 should have taught that lesson But one of the things that should have even taught it more is the fact that there are so many people, A, who don't vote for thoughtful, rational reasons, right? Like it's often assumed that they don't vote because they're just morally uh, reckless or just too stupid to even understand Mm -hmm. why it matters. When if you talk to them, you'll find they're in smarter than most of the people with blue check marks that you can converse with on Twitter on any given day. Secondly, there are huge numbers of people who voted twice for Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump. That's just a fact that number uh, a large number now of polls have demonstrated. They're not aberrations. It's fairly common. If you have a understanding of American politics shaped by, you know, think tanks in Washington, the New York Times op-ed page, the Washington Post op-ed page and blue checkmark Twitter, that would make no sense to you of any kind. Or if you hear people saying, my first choice is Donald Trump, but my second choice is Bernie Sanders, that also would not compute for the standard journalistic or political operative mind. When in reality, it makes all the sense in the world because Bernie 
just doesn't seem or smell like he comes from the establishment of the elite, which that is a very visceral uh, component of politics, right? How somebody seems, whereas Hillary reeks in every way, like she just walked out of an Aetna board meeting. Um, and, you know, so does Kamala Harris, same thing. Like, she, like, like she just came out of a board meeting talking about layoffs. Like the, my be said about Mitt Romney, he looks like the guy who comes and lays you off. So I think there's a big aspect of that that is at play in, in, in politics, not just in the United States, but also in Brazil. You know, people ask me here in Brazil, how is it possible that the same country that four consecutive times voted for the Workers' Party, founded by Lula da Silva, who was illiterate until he was 10, who had nine siblings, who had lost a finger in a factory, who began as basically a communist, was friends with Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. How did that same country four times in a row vote for PT and then suddenly turn around and vote for Bolsonaro? They weren't doing it because they loved the left-wing ideology and then suddenly loved the right-wing ideology. It was because those were the politicians who channeled anger and rage, valid anger and rage, against the elite class, which includes the media, against corporate control and domination. And that's such a big, important part of politics. I think the question of the wokeness issue, I mean, if you look at how Bernie did in 2016 versus how he did in 2020, it's kind of tragic because he had all the advantages in the world in 2020 that he didn't have in 2016. He had universal name recognition, uh, on the ground operation that was very sophisticated, huge amounts of money that came from small donors, um, was obviously better positioned to figure out what went wrong. And yet he did way worse in 2020 by most metrics than 2016, most significantly of which he lost those kind of Lech Walesa, rural union, soft partisan voters because he started sounding like much more of a traditional Democrat. So I'm hesitant to say that politicians should jettison talk of whatever we mean by woke politics, like defending the ability of trans people to live dignified, equal lives or LGBTs or abortion, because I think those things matter. And I don't think we need to, or I don't want to at least argue that they should be ignored. Like here in Brazil, the solution to it, because it's a really conservative country socially. So people on the left look at Lula, who talked almost exclusively about class politics and won with that and never talked about social issues because he didn't want to offend left-wing evangelicals. Their solution now is to say, Let's put those things to a referendum. If there should be gay marriage, if there should be abortion, if there should be trans bathroom rights, let's let the people decide. It's kind of their way of escaping it. So I think it's important to find that middle ground where you're not jettison talk of whatever we mean by woke politics, but where you're not centering it because that kind of discourse um, can alienate people. I remember before like Super Tuesday, there was this professor, her name's Kimberly Crenshaw. She's this African-American professor at, I believe, UCLA. And she pioneered intersectionality. I, I think she pioneered the term or like the foundational theory. And like two days, this is the funniest fucking thing I've ever seen. Before Super Tuesday, she came out and endorsed Elizabeth Warren. Mm. You know, and all Warren supporters, and I feel comfortable saying all, are like affluent liberals in like isolated suburban communities. Um overwhelmingly white and they were like on Twitter and like non-ironically they were like oh my god this is huge Kimberly Crenshaw and it's like she's the fucking pioneer of intersectionality like something that like none of the people whose votes you need ever even heard of let let alone give a shit about or think that like will affect their lives in any meaningful way so I don't think it's necessary to renounce the importance of those views but I think it's important to realize the bubble in which so many of us live and to 
find a way to talk about the things that people care about, including those issues, so we don't sound like we're writing for peer-reviewed academic journals at like the Oberlin Women's Studies Program, but instead are communicating as human beings to other human beings. Yeah. And to be clear, that's, you know, to that things like gay marriage and that's not, I, I know it's not what Matt means about it, not what mm-hmm. I mean about wokeness is that my fear, by the way, is excessive wokeness, which is this kind of punishing version of identity politics is um, drives younger people away from the real mainstream ideas of racial equality, gender equality, you know, um, gay marriage, things like that, because they all find it. It's all they're all the same. And I've I've seen that actually young people, particularly on on the Internet. The one the one thing that actually on the working class people, um, you know, who hate the kind of wokeness, that's just, you know, it's a given. And and every time I've asked, I get the same response. The thing that I found interesting, and this is, of course, anecdotal, was I was at a couple of Bernie rallies uh, this year. And I was asking people, we were filming, and I was asking people, this is after the Joe Rogan thing. And, you know, Joe Rogan has, no matter how you slice it, probably the biggest radio show in the country. You can cast it a podcast, whatever. It is hugely influential, widely listened to by people who don't even understand the basic kind of political denominations. Like a way bigger audience than every cable show, including primetime cable shows. Yeah. combined. I mean, it is routinely number one on Apple, iTunes, and these people saying we have to renounce it. So I was talking to people at the Sanders rally, and these were not people that were kind of like, you know, working class types that were in between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. These were people that looked like, you know, they'd be at a coffee shop in, in, in Williamsburg in Brooklyn or whatever. But they had come, I talked to a couple of people who had come, um, this was in Iowa, from Minneapolis. They'd driven from all over. And they were cosmopolitan people, but even they were like, I don't this is crazy. I mean, why would we renounce this guy? And I like the guy. And yeah, he has a lot of views I disagree with, but at least he has people on that he disagrees with. And I think the conversation's good. And they were mystified that I was even asking this question. Yeah, like he's not, he's not like Hitler, right? Like occasionally he'd be like, Hey, can you walk me through the rationale about why people who live their entire lives into puberty and adulthood as men should be able to compete as women? Like, are there standards that we need or can it be unfair? The same question that Martina Navratilova, we were talking about this before on for, uh, you know, who is my childhood hero. I was making a film about her. She started seeing these people who live their entire lives as men who like a year before their competition said, Hey, by the way, I'm a woman. And then started competing against women and winning. And she just asked like, so what, is it just like the declaration that you're a woman that now lets you enter? Or do you need to like actually do surgery? And, she got mauled. She got expelled. Like fucking Martina Navratilova, who in 1984 had a trans woman coach that she dragged around with her all over the world and put on NBC. I remember during the Wimbledon finals, they would be like, uh, there's Martina's uh, companion, Judy Nelson. And, 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 and that's her coach, um, whose name is Renee Richards. It used to be Dr. Richard. Like doing more for visibility of all kinds than any of these people she got canceled because she just asked the question like is there a fairness element here what standards should we use to allow men who went through puberty and develop muscle mass and hormonal systems that might give them an advantage like is there just for asking that question she was expelled from lgbt sports boards that's what i think excessive wokeness (laughs) is is when you don't even allow debate that most people are already having and that's when it starts to feel repressive and alienating and and even repugnant i mean i have questions about this stuff because i don't follow it um and i think of myself as a rather open-minded person but i don't dare ask them i mean because if i ask the wrong question it'll be interpreted as a view of mine and then i'll just be mauled and i just 
you know what? It's just best not because it's not my issue anyway. So I kind of quietly under the covers with a but flashlight. But that's terrible that, all you're, that you're deterred and chilled from asking questions. So um, you have a media platform that gives you more latitude. Imagine the ordinary citizen resentment that breeds over this kind of climate. Yeah. There are a couple more things that we were potentially going to talk about. Um, there's the 2020 election broadly, but specifically some very troubling allegations that have been leveled against uh, one Joe Biden. And I'm also interested in talking a little bit about the growing tensions between the U.S. and China, not only related to COVID, but also related to China's stepped up aggressiveness um, in their own region, uh, the things that are happening in Hong Kong um, and their general marauding about the uh, South China Sea um, and the United States sending some cruisers in there as well. Um, But I also have a question from a sort of philosophical standpoint for you, Glenn, about the two sort of strains of your thought as I've been able to interpret them. I guess it's fair to describe them as socialist policies with respect to supporting redistributive policy um, with respect to Facebook or YouTube. And perhaps I don't know what your perspective is there, if there needs to be some sort of broader regulatory authority. To the extent we're doing any of these things, be it a more robust entitlement system um, that gives a lot more money to the state to give out, um, or more protections essentially for speech that prevent these uh, internet companies from doing various things, do you have similar concerns to your concerns about civil liberties that start to manifest themselves? Because the libertarian argument on the other side is at least in part a concern about concentrations of power in the hands of the state, which even if they're not abused immediately, might eventually be abused. Yeah, it's it's a question I've I've talked to libertarians about in the past, and that's a common question I get. Uh, from libertarians who have always composed like a minority, but a substantial minority of my readership who agree a lot with, with my civil liberties and anti-imperialism uh, positions is exactly that. Like, how is it that you can be so skeptical of the government when it comes to military power and civil liberties abuses, but then trust them so much to redistribute wealth? And I think it goes back to, in a lot of ways, the left-wing critique that I mentioned of libertarianism, or at least capitalism earlier, which is there are a lot of people on the left, when I mentioned crony capitalism, who I, who, who I said, regard crony capitalism as an oxymoron, that there's no such thing as any kind of capitalism besides crony capitalism. Then, And the founders talked about this as well, that you can guarantee political rights, but if you allow income and wealth inequality to get too severe eventually it erode it will erode political rights and rights of justice because capitalism will create this class of people who are so economically powerful that inevitably it'll spill over into political power as well i happen not to think that i happen to think that you can have a capitalist system but need government rules to regulate it to make sure that it doesn't turn into corrupt crony capitalism my view of soft socialism is very similar. So I think that you can have income inequality and wealth inequality so severe that you no longer have a meaningful, a meaningfully free political system because you can have it in name only like we have it, but then at the same time have the class of oligarchs and wealthy people be so economically powerful that they control the levers of government. So trying to eliminate, not eliminate, to zero, but reduce to a reasonable degree social, 
uh, and economic inequality is not to me dangerous in the sense that you vest surveillance power or other power in the hands of the government. It's actually necessary to prevent governments from becoming perverted in their own power because I don't see how you can sustain even a democratic system where people are elected if the ones to whom they're beholden are the wealthiest people. So when it comes time to bail out, to bail out the country, they're the ones who get all the money. And my understanding of libertarian doctrine to the extent that, you know, I've read, I've read Reason Magazine for a long time um, and have listened to a lot of libertarians debate and speak is that many libertarians, maybe most, account for the fact that society can become so unequal in its wealth distribution. So you have a tiny portion of the population who are billionaires and everybody else who barely is able to maintain subsistence for their families, that some government intervention is justified in order to at least equal the playing field to some degree because that concentrated economic power, like monopolies, for example, need government intervention. I do think there's an opportunity for the same kinds of government abuse of power when you're empowering them to redistribute wealth as when you're empowering them to monitor the population. But I also think that there can be safeguards and controls like there is with government surveillance. So we let government surveil people, but we say you have to go to a court in order to justify why a search warrant is needed in this case. I think you can have oversight and regulatory functions for how wealth gets redistributed as well. But I don't deny there's a tension. I just don't think it's an irresolvable one. And I think absent government intervention, like pure unrestrained capitalism, as the founders warn, will lead to oligarchy as opposed to anything resembling democracy or a republic where the rights exist on paper but can be easily overridden by unconstrained power that comes from unconstrained wealth. Cool. And, and I'm, I'm more interested in your answer than trying to rebut any of that. But as you mentioned all of that, it makes me think about the role that you've played in the conversation about surveillance and I've always wondered what your thoughts are now uh, about where we stand and about the progress that has been made in those issues. Um, if, if you are optimistic about our ability to actually achieve reforms and keep people interested in these issues, or if you are somewhat disappointed by the way things have unfolded since the revelations about the, the mass surveillance programs that exist. And those same programs have played a role in the the Russiagate controversy, you just mentioned the courts that are important or are supposed to be instrumental in restraining government and preventing abuses. But of course, we have seen some things recently that suggest the FISA system hasn't worked out necessarily as well as some people, Michael Moynihan, thought it might. <laughs> don't, don't, bring, don't bring me into this. It's very interesting. I'm gonna what go, are you talking about? The minute I'm done here, I'm going to go find those and post them on Twitter and mock Michael for that. Oh, <laughs> you, know, the, you know, Glenn, in the, you, the Camille, I appreciate that. I read, that. you said that you were going to calm down on Twitter and that you were going to be nicer and nothing happened. It's going so gen- to be gentle mockery, but mockery for sure. Do you know what I miss? I, I miss, before you get into that, it's just I miss update seven. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was my that favorite. That is one thing world. I did. I yeah. did give up just for my the sake of my own <laughs> mental my own mental health. Um, yeah, no, I think that, it, it's funny because the FISA court was always a fucking joke, and mm-hmm. everybody recognized it as such. It has like a ninety eight point ninety nine point eight percent approval rating in its thirty year history, and the reason is 
obvious, which is only one side gets to show up. And as a lawyer, I know very well, like any lawyer does, that if only one side shows up, only one lawyer shows up and gets to say whatever they want with no questioning or opposition or alternative facts presented, you're always going to win. It's like the most rigged system possible. So only the Justice Department goes to the secret court. But the dynamic that's even more disturbing is the following, which is if the government comes and says to a judge in secret, we need to eavesdrop on this person because we think they're plotting to blow up Times Square or a subway or an airplane, even if the judge is unconvinced by the evidence presented, which often they are, the incentive overwhelmingly is to sign the FISA warrant. Because if you sign the FISA warrant and it turns out the person isn't a danger, nobody's ever going to know. No harm, no foul. But if you're the judge who rejects that FISA warrant and the person goes and blows up a subway and kills 300 people, the first thing the FBI is going to say is, don't blame us. We tried to monitor this person's communications. And that judge right there said no. And that the blood is on that person's hand. So intrinsic to the whole process has always been the overwhelming incentive to just be a rubber stamp, which is really the intention of it to begin with. Everybody knew that. And it was only during Russiagate what everybody certainly knew it as part of the Snowden story. I remember very well, they barely mounted that defense. Oh, don't worry. We have this great FISA process in place as a safeguard because everybody already knew because of the 2005 Bush Cheney story that the New York Times broke about domestic eavesdropping where they circumvented FISA. Nobody could understand why did you circumvent FISA? There's no reason they say yes in every case. It was common knowledge that it was a bullshit illusory process. But Russiagate is really what revitalized the mythology around all of these safeguards because the liberal resistance fighters, the underground, brave, armed resistance (laughs) fighters against here in the United States, elevated CIA and FBI and Homeland Security agents as their champions, right? It's like the weirdest resistance ever, a resistance that venerates the security state of that country. I think it's the first time it's ever happened. There's a first for everything. So we witnessed (laughs) the first of a resistance movement venerating the security agents, the armed security agents of the United States. And they made them all on cable. There, Michael Hayden's book that Matt is holding up. Another one by James Clapper. Very honorable people who are now liberal stars. Um, I remember, you know, like they would go to, like they would have hacker conferences and they would wear like, Robert Mueller t-shirts as though he were Che Guevara, even though he was George Bush's post 9-11 FBI director who lied about Iraq WMDs. But that became the liberal uh, ethos. They, they venerated these people as experts. And of course, they were saying during Russiagate, oh, look, if they got a FISA warrant against Carter Page, that is some serious shit. You know there's real substance to it because you don't get FISA warrants easily unless you have really rock-solid evidence that the person is an agent of the Russian government. And of course... By the way, that New, York, that New Yorker article does mention, and I, I'm from memory, I think this is right, where where I think it was Ian Frazier that wrote it? Was that who, who, who wrote it? Um, oh, the, the one about the me, I mean. Yeah, the yeah, one designed to in, depict uh, me as being mentally ill, which is why I refuse to see what everybody sane sees, which is the Trump Russell collusion right before our eyes. That article, you mean? <laughs> the other well, shoe is about to drop. Part, it's about to drop. There's one part <laughs> as a result of this podcast. Where, <laughs> there's one part of that piece where he's where he's like, well, you know, this interview happened before 
Carter Page and all that. (laughs) You know, looking back at it, I'm like, you know, that kind of guy that was ambling through like Manhattan, like, you know, hello, are you Russian? I mean, it was like insane. I remember he He used to go on Chris Hayes and they would like spend all day on Twitter mocking Carter Page for being this like autistic clown which, you know, was offensive no, and very clueless. ableist, I should add. But, like, mocking him for being that, and then at the same time insisting that this was a confession that's that he was, mastermind. like, the mastermind agent on behalf of the Kremlin <laughs> here to subvert American democracy. And, of course, it turned out that even Robert Mueller said there was zero evidence that he ever did. They were He was so fucking wrongly vilified, and they got a FISA warrant on him to read his conversations, one of the worst abuses a US, the U.S. government can possibly commit getting a warrant to surveil U.S. citizens' communications in the middle of an election based on fraudulent affidavits, and no Mm. one treats that like it's serious because they all took it seriously at the time. So, yeah, I mean, I think that that has been one of my big problems, (laughs) not just with Russiagate, but with the whole brave warriors of the the resistance, (laughs) is that they took these people who had been discredited for decades and venerated them into the fonts of wisdom. The fucking CIA. Those are the people that we trust now. It's a good thing Henry Kissinger didn't have anything to say about Russiagate that was, uh, you know, because then he would have been wheeled out to be the, the the other guy, just be next to Clapper. And yeah, no, it is, it is funny. I've actually thought that, you know, as we're coming to the end here, I thought we were going to get through this podcast without mentioning Russia. And then it came up and uh, we needed a little of the fire. We got some of the fire. I'm happy about that. I'd, I'd I'm always, always happy to it. talk about it. Well, can I, can I ask you that, that, that question though, which I think is something that it's not a political question, but it is something that comes up when your name comes up. And when I talk to other journalists about it and when I see it online and the rest of it, it is the fire. It is the, the Glenn Greenwald passion. And in that piece, you said, well, I am going to try to, dial back the Twitter. And this is in the New Yorker piece. And you said your husband was like, I had like taken your phone from you or something because it was, it was driving you a bit crazier. The rest of it, you don't seem to have done that, right? You're still pretty active on Twitter. Is that, is that true? Have you, have you, have you cut down on it at all? No. <laughs> Let me say this. <laughs> That's the outro music. The outro music starts playing right now. I think, so I have changed, I've changed how I take it on. Like I never tweet out of anger. Like even my insults are designed to entertain me. So I'll like knowingly single some person out just arbitrarily, even if like, you know, they're a small account. I don't believe in just attacking like blue check um, verified accounts with big media platforms. Cause I think it's elitist. Like I think it's important to sometimes like smash and, and, and mock and deride um, <laughs> yes. innocent, obscure people as well who are saying bullshit. Yeah, it's just like the down. egalitarian in yes, me. That's right. But um, you know, like the whole, I think what happened with the whole Russia thing was, when the Snowden thing happened, you know, they already hated me because I had been like a very aggressive media critic for years. I'd kind of always been on the outside throwing rocks in. And then once, you know, we won the Pulitzer and the Polk and the whole thing with the Oscar and all of that, they kind of had to let me into their sacred gates for a while. Their, their halls, their corridors of power. And it sickened them. And, but they had to. And then... Um, you know, like we won all the awards and we started a new media outlet with like a billionaire funding us. And so they're like, fuck, we're stuck with him. And then they thought like the Russiagate heresy was their opportunity to expel me from the halls of liberal decency. And then unfortunately for them, the Mueller report came out and said like, none of this ever happened. We're not going to arrest anybody for criminally conspiring in the Trump campaign with Russia because like they didn't. And then I did the stories last year in Brazil 
Um, so they just feel stuck with me. So I think that increased the animosity level just even more. But they still expelled you. You still got expelled, right? You don't, you're not invited on MSNBC anymore. Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, if, yeah, like if, if like four minute cable hits to like 70 year old wine moms is your metric, it's true. <laughs> I've been expelled. What, what other metric is the only one that matters? <laughs> That's it. But, you know, I feel like I have good access to the media still. I feel like, you know, my journalism is taken seriously. I think that, uh, you know, we won a lot of journalism prizes already in Brazil for the exposés we did last year. We're probably going to win some in the U.S. again this year. So I, I don't think it worked for them. Is the main, does the mainstream uh, in Brazil, and I will say the mainstream sort of liberal, non-Bolsonaro media, do they treat you um, with respect or do you get the same kind of thing? It was kind of the same thing. Like I really started the Intercept Brazil, like the Brazilian version of the Intercept during the debate over whether to impeach Dilma Rousseff, the Brazilian president in 2016. And the entire media in Brazil, the mainstream media was united in favor of it. And I became probably the most vocal mainstream voice using my platform there and in the US to denounce it. So there was a lot of tension there. I had already done a lot of the Snowden work in Brazil with the biggest media outlets in Brazil, including Globo, and one like the Pulitzer equivalent in Brazil. So they liked me then. During the impeachment thing, they hated me. And then last year with this huge Moro story that you know came from this archive, um, they got stuck with me also. Um, I had to go on every show. They had to interview me. They kind of defended me because they also hate Bolsonaro. And then especially when the reprisals started, they were very much on my side. So it kills them um, that they had to let me into their little living rooms and, and defend me as well. It's a very similar dynamic. That's the dynamic I love to get awards and accolades from them, but only when it's like really begrudging and it hurts them to give it. That's my favorite dynamic. Well, I saw Moro uh, making a triumphant appearance before your reporting on Fried Zakaria's show, um, explaining Operation Car Wash and uh, the corruption in Brazil and not really getting any um, hard questions that uh, he wrote or somebody else wrote for him. Uh, so I and when and when your reporting came out, I was like, oh, that's the guy that I saw on Fried Zakaria's show that was kind of celebrated. Oh yeah. He became, you know, he was like on the time 100 list. He went to like the gala in New York. He had like a fluff piece on six. I mean, he was really turned into an international icon first in Brazil and then in the United States and then, and then internationally, um, you know, he was like this very kind of uh, austere judge who was doling out harsh pr prison sentences to like billionaires and powerful political. Pol I liked him in the beginning too, um, until I started realizing the ways in which he was corrupt. But yeah, that was what made the the reporting so difficult and dangerous was that far and away, he's Brazil's most popular icon. Glenn, I, I don't know how much longer um, we can hold you. Getting a little tired of you guys, but I have a little I more understand. time. <laughs> I, and I, Wrap I, appreciate, it up, I appreciate it. The <laughs> one thing I, I would like to try to get you to weigh in on is I, I saw a Twitter exchange um, where you had tweeted something about a recent New York Times article. Um, and I believe it was about the Chinese and some of the meddling they're doing domestically, or at least the disinformation campaign uh, related to COVID. Um, and the, the, the story itself seemed to be primarily about these text messages that were being sent out uh, that some people may have received. I remember getting it from someone else um, that were not necessarily linked to China, but have been linked to China, um, according to some reporting. 
Uh, but the, the text messages suggested that Donald Trump was about to institute martial law in the United States. And I think you were skeptical of, not skeptical of, you were critical of the tone. And I suspect you were probably concerned, um, as I am, uh, but I, I have, unfortunately, these, these two very strong dynamics, um, a bit concerned about the tone there, it being somewhat hysterical. And perhaps even, I think you specifically mentioned uh, Russiagate and the degree to which people who are talking about China in sort of too hot a way right now are perhaps reaching back to some of that kind of hysteria. On the podcast, we've talked a lot about China in recent weeks. And since my trip to Hong Kong uh, back in January, just before everything exploded, I have been particularly assertive in my criticism of China because of the very explicit and increasingly assertive uh, attempts to undermine the government of Hong Kong and, um, and to threaten other sovereign states. Um, and broadly, I think, to exercise this just assault on the notions of free speech and these other very essential values that I know we all um, share. Like, how do you confront uh, a, a power like that, that is, that has values that are so antithetical to, to the, to the values that we prize without running the risk of inflaming rhetoric in a way that might make it more likely that there is a hot war? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one I've been grappling with a lot. I don't think that the question of China fits into any, at least of my pre-existing frameworks for how I think about other countries in the U.S. relationship to it. So I'll just make a few points and they may not even be, they're probably, they're probably in tension with one another, which is one of the reasons why I'm still kind of grappling with trying to figure out exactly how to talk about this and how to think about it. Um, with things like the New York Times story and other similar stories, oftentimes my critique is just purely journalistic, not geostrategic or ethical. Mm -hmm. It's just newspapers that publish claims that are from the intelligence community where they give anonymity to the sources who are disseminating this information that is unaccompanied by evidence except in very rare cases, in my view, are journalistically unjustifiable. I don't think the New York Times and the Washington Post should be disseminating, especially without huge doses of explicit skepticism, those kinds of uncorroborated, uncorroborated claims that come from factions inside the government that don't just have a history of lying, but are trained to lie about U.S. Mm -hmm. adversaries. Obviously, that was supposed to be the lesson of the Iraq war, right? Was if you look at the New York Times apology, we're like, hey, we're really sorry. We just disseminated anonymous claims about Iraqi weapons programs with not a sufficient skepticism that journalism uh, ought to always apply. So I see that same mistake being made. It was what drove the Russia story overwhelmingly. So much misinformation came from it. But even when it turns out by happenstance to be true, journalistically, it's still flawed. So that is part of my critique always is just a journalistic one, which is kind of a narrow one, but I think an important one. It's, and, the, and the other aspect of it is a contextual one, which is, this is always my problem with Russiagate, which is the idea that the Russians interfered in the 2016 election by doing things like Facebook ads and Twitter, mm -hmm. art, you know, Twitter uh, postings that were artificial or boosted by robots or designed to inflame divisions or even the maximalist theory that they hacked into the Clinton and DNC servers and then disseminated it through WikiLeaks. It isn't that I ever disbelieved that happened. 
nor that I thought it was justified to do. It was that in the scheme of geopolitical relations, that's like a tiny asterisk, a tiny footnote compared to what the U.S. and China and Russia and Iran do to one another all the time. The U.S. interferes in every country. I live in a country that still reels from the consequences of a coup in 1964 that overthrew a center-left democratically elected government engineered by the CIA that was followed by a 21-year brutal military dictatorship that the U.S. and U.K. trained and supported. I mean, interference in other countries' elections is commonplace. And so to talk about Russian interference on a very kind of small scale, as though it was aberrational or uniquely sinister or out of the ordinary for what great powers do to one another is what bothered me far more than whether it was actually true. And the same is true with China. China disseminating disinformation of the US government is planning to do regarding COVID-19. I have no doubt they do stuff like that. Whether they did mm-hmm. it here, I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me. But obviously, the U.S. does that constantly to China, to Russia. The U.S. created a whole fake Twitter network in order to incite Cubans to overthrow Castro. You, an entire thing that looked like Twitter, but that was a fake Twitter account. Is that interfering in the domestic affairs of other countries? It seems to me like it is. So that's always what part, of, part of what bothered me of the discourse. On the more important part of the question that you raised, which is how do you talk about the abuses of other governments without inflaming tensions or ratcheting up hostilities to the point of maybe even helping to trigger wars, Cold War or, or worse. One of the examples I always remember is that in 2005, 2006, right when I started writing about politics, obviously the Iraq war was at its peak and there was a lot of talk about neocons wanting to extend the regime change in Iraq to Iran. There was one iconic quote in Time magazine from an anonymous neocon. It was either Richard Pearl or Paul Wolfowitz or maybe Douglas Fife that said, it's easy to go to Baghdad, but real men go to Tehran. Hmm. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, there started to be all these stories about repressive treatment by the Iranian mullahs of gay men. They were hanging them from cranes. They were throwing them off roofs, all that kind of stuff. All of it was true, but I didn't write about that with indignation. Why? Because what would the effect have been had I done so? I can't change internal Iranian repression. I don't speak Farsi. I don't have an audience in Iran. I don't know enough about the culture to pose as an expert. Obviously, I'm against throwing gay men off roofs and hanging them by cranes. I think it's morally reprehensible, but I have to choose every day what I focus on. And focusing on that would have had no effect of helping to end that injustice. What it would have done was what it was designed to do, which is why the neocons disseminated it into the bloodstream of U.S. discourse, which is make you hate the Iranian government enough to want to go to war against them, like they did with Saddam Hussein gassing his own people or ripping babies from incubators. It's just part of war propaganda. Sometimes it's true But whether or not you jump on board of it, I think the ethical question is, what effect are you having by doing that? Are you helping inadvertently or otherwise fuel something that's even more dangerous? Or are you really working to end the injustice? Because look at how many governments the U.S. is very closely allied with. In Saudi Arabia, how do you think LGBTs are treated there or dissidents generally or Egypt or Israel? So my standard has always been, I tend to avoid criticizing other countries and their abuses 
unless there's some effect I can have, particularly on U.S. policy, so I can end aid to Egypt or to Saudi Arabia because I have a base in U.S. politics, so I can actually change that. I can't just rant against the abuses of foreign governments where I have no influence and no control. On the question of China, my, my instinct always was Uyghurs in concentration camps, dissidents in prison. Obviously, the Chinese government is oppressive. I don't speak Mandarin. I'm not known in China. I don't have a, a media following in China. What good does my condemnations of the Chinese government do? The suppression of protesters in Hong Kong, the denial of political rights in Taiwan, all those things that I'm against. But my talking about those and going around beating the drums about it is just going to help the factions in the U.S. that want to go to war with China, a cold war or a hot war. The, the, the complicating factor for me is that China has a huge impact on life in the United States. It is a, a, usually when the U.S. has an adversary, all power centers are united against it. Like in 2002, nobody was in favor of Saddam Hussein. Everybody agreed to hate Saddam Hussein. Or the same with the, Irani, the Iranian mullahs. In the United States, there's like a militaristic hawkish wing of the national security state, like John Bolton and Marco Rubio, those kind of people. And the Pentagon, Pentagon planners who want to think about Beijing as a traditional U.S. adversary that we need to kind of have a more aggressive adversarial relationship with that I don't want to help fuel. But there's also a very powerful sector or faction, which is the oligarchs of the United States that are in bed with the Chinese government because they exploit slave labor or cheap labor to increase, like the Davos crowd loves the Chinese Communist Party. That's why when Michael Bloomberg is asked, do you think the Chinese government is a dictatorship? He says no. And obviously a huge part of why we've lost tons of industry and tons of jobs is because American corporations are moving those workers to China where they pay 10 cents an hour, use Chinese labor, no regulations, no days off, all of that. Um, in order to increase their profit margins. And there is an argument to make as well that China is now competing for influence with the U.S. with respect to other countries. So they're not just content to have this kind of repressive, brutal capitalism, even though they're called communism, confined to their own borders or to those of their neighbors, but they want to actually spread that to the rest of the world in a way that can compete with the political model that the U.S. at least aspirationally advocates. So I don't think it's such a easy and clear picture that you can just fit into pre-existing models about how you talk about U.S. adversaries. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. And my current position is I just want to think more about it. I'm talking to a lot of Chinese, China experts um, to try and get a better hold of what's true, what's not true, what are the more proximate dangers, and what are the more distant ones. Yeah. I'd say the one thought that I have is when I was in Hong Kong, um, it was routine for the folks who were there to to thank me for being there and taking an interest in their struggle. The the pro democracy movement in Hong Kong doesn't have a lot of things going for it uh, apart from numbers, um, but what they have been able to do is generate a lot of international concern uh, about their cause and. You know, I think to the extent we are writing about it and talking about it in ways that really resonate with domestic audiences, you know, and, and international audiences, that does seem to be a constraint on what Beijing is willing to do. And it, it really is 
interesting the degree to which they've ratcheted up hostilities uh, in that conflict while our attention is is obviously occupied with covid and the ufos obviously yeah it's also occupying a lot of our attention <laughs> more so, importantly yeah well the worst thing is that matt has a hard hat and we've been taking up so much of glenn's time and it is how convenient is it that it's the the thing that i disagree with glenn on is the last thing and Matt has to go and we're all, perfect, yeah. isn't it? And you know, we softball because we talk about all the stuff that we that we agree on because we're a very congenial, nice group of people. In the end, Glenn says something, I'm like, oh, I gotta get, you know, who, I'm gonna who do has it. a hard out who has a hard out these days? We're in a fucking pandemic where we're all at home. What's going on, Matt? <laughs> What's this hard out? I don't believe that school-aged children and Zoom meetings is who does. Uh, no, yeah. I want, Wait, do, you, I, do you have a Zoom meeting with the Koch brothers, man? <laughs> <laughs> only, one, only one of those left. Um, uh, no, actually, I wanted to commend Glenn uh, for the same thing that Moynihan's criticizing him, which is that <laughs> I, too, uh, uh, kind of disagree with the the windup of the, the consideration of, of uh, how you assess when to criticize a, a foreign actor and why. And yet that was the best statement of it probably that I've ever heard orally and not even read uh, writtenly um, having uh, been um, uh, arguing on different elements of that for 30 odd years. Yeah, yeah, so I, would, I was saying by that. the bell. <laughs> <laughs> Round two is coming down, people. Yeah, I was the that guy that Mike Tyson well. fought uh, right out of prison. The guy that they just found like wandering the streets, like, you know, just get beaten up. Uh, so I'm glad that I was tomato camp. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, then thank you for joining us. I uh, hope you stay safe out there um, and hope we have another opportunity to do this again soon. Yeah. Keep up the great work. Um, as I told you, uh, a friend of mine has been harassing me forever to listen. And I uh, recently began listening and then I even listened to some back episodes because you guys are doing a great job. Really interesting. Uh, stay safe as well, everybody. Thank, thank you very Thanks, much. Even, thank you very much, Greg. And you have a very, very smart friend. Yeah. Even Don't though know that, who he is, but he's brilliant. <laughs> even though that endorsement was somewhat garbled <laughs> by the, uh, by the internet connection, but I can assure you, if you had any trouble hearing it, he said we're exceptional and you made a great decision listening to yeah. this podcast. <laughs> you should be back every week. That's right. So. <laughs> Absolutely true. All right, All right Thanks, guys. Man. Great talking to you. All right. Thanks, Bye. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The fifth column.